it's really important that we have an independent left that participates in social movements, but also when we get to elections, uh, the movements don't get taken for granted. If uh, progressive social movements don't have an independent left alternative, they're reduced to lobbying the Democrats, who can take them for granted because their votes won't go anywhere else. Uh, social movements need a, a left alternative to have leverage in the political system. Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Always want to extend a welcome to you guys. Uh, really do respect all of you who are hanging in there through this pandemic, working to continue to put out progressive politics, continue to support progressive media, alternative media. Uh, I've heard from a number of people. I know that there's a lot of chatter on Facebook, on social media, etc., about the impact all of this has had on media and uh, what corporate media has done in this election cycle, what role the alternative media can play. And I just want to reiterate, as always, the role that each and every one of us plays in keeping alternative media on the left going. Um, Counterpunch is an outlet that I've been following since I've been politically mature. Uh, I'm really privileged to be part of the Counterpunch team and really do respect um, everything that that, that we do, that we put out there, the work that we're putting out there. And I hope that you guys respect that as well in this very complicated time. You can get a subscription to the print magazine to keep us going. You can make a donation through the PayPal. You can buy some gear from the store, merchandise, books, music, whatever you think is appropriate. Um, We do really appreciate that. So uh, anyway, let me turn to my guest today. I'm really happy to talk to him. Somebody whose career I followed for quite a number of years now and uh, whose politics I, of course, respect and really wanted to hear from, particularly in this time. It is Howie Hawkins. He is a leading candidate, the leading candidate for the Green presidential nomination, that is the presidential nomination of the Green Party for 2020. He's a former candidate on the Green Party for uh, New York governor and for a number of other positions as well. He's a co-founder of the Green Party of the United States, an activist, a unionist, an all-around swell guy, a leftist, a socialist, a commie that we can all like. HowieHawkins.us is the website. Howie, welcome to the show. Well, great. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, thank you for coming on the show and for continuing to do all of the work that you that you are doing. Um, so I want to ask you right at the outset, uh, for everybody who's listening, who may be unfamiliar with you and your background, who is Howie Hawkins? Where do you come from? How is uh, your background shaping and continuing to shape your politics today? Well, I come from the San Francisco Bay Area. I came up in the 50s and 60s. And for me, even as a child, civil rights was a big issue. As I headed to elementary school, I had cousins who were the children of one of the first Japanese war brides at the time stationed in Virginia. I had another set of cousins there who were white, and they were being sent to separate schools, the Asian cousins to the colored schools and the white cousins to the white schools. And I'm headed to elementary school thinking, you know, I couldn't go to school with my playmates if that was the law in California. And I just thought that was wrong. And so I was aware of those things. Now, my cousins got relocated in Germany, ended up not going to the colored schools there in Virginia. But uh, I went to elementary school and soon they had us diving under our desks, putting our hands over our heads in case of a nuclear war. And I'm thinking, man, the adults, they haven't got it together. I mean, why don't they do something about that? So I already sort of had a little bit of skepticism about how this country is being run as a child. And then I'm 12 years old, and now uh, we just had the Rumsford Fair Housing Law uh, Act passed in California, and Ronald Reagan's leading the Republican charge against that with a referendum, which they won at the end of the year and repealed that law. So I'm thinking, well, the Republicans sure aren't for civil rights. What about the Democrats? They had a choice between the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the old segregationist Dixiecrats. And they Johnson sent, you know, Humphrey and Mondale, the liberals, to go tell the Freedom Democrats they had to wait. So I'm asking, at 12 years old, where's my party? And uh, I later learned that John Lewis asked the same question in his speech for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom the year before. So my first party was the Peace and Freedom Party, 1968. And I got swept up into the movement. You know, Johnson won and he escalated in Vietnam, so now we had an anti-war movement. And so peace and freedom was peace in Vietnam. Freedom was the civil rights slogan. And uh, I became committed at that time to, we need a working class independent party committed to what we call participatory democracy, democratic socialism, and ecology. And so I supported the People's Party, which was the next round in 72 and 76 with Dr. Benjamin Spock, the baby doctor that parents of my generation, you know, he was the guy to raising us. And then we ran uh, in the Citizens Party in 1980, Barry Commoner, who was the uh, most prominent environmental scientist at the time. And then because I had helped organize the Clamshell Alliance, an anti-nuclear alliance that did a big occupation of the Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire in 1977, we got 1,414 people arrested and it kind of sparked a nationwide anti-nuclear movement. Uh, there was a meeting to organize a Green Party because the German Greens had just elected 35 people to their, what they call Bundestag, their Congress. And so we thought maybe we should be doing that here. So they, the people organized this meeting invited a clamshell to send a couple people. And I was one of them. And my message to that meeting was, we can't build a third party out of a presidential campaign. We've got to build it from the bottom up. We got to organize local groups and start in local elections and build up from there. And that's what we proceeded to do for the next dozen years. So by 96, when Ralph Nader let us use his name, he didn't really campaign to put on the ballot as a presidential candidate. We got on the ballot of more than 30 states. 
and that laid the groundwork for the 2000 campaign where Ralph really did run and it really put the Green Party on the map nationally. So that's how I got from coming up in the San Francisco Bay Area to where I am now. And I've, you know, as you mentioned, I've, the Greens have run me a number of times statewide office here in New York, three times for governor. We got enough for a ballot line every time. And I got as much as 5% in 2014, which forced Governor Cuomo to compete for our votes. So we got a ban on fracking, $15 minimum wage, paid family leave. So we don't have to win the office to have leverage in the political system. But, you know, I'm, I'm giving you a long introduction, but, you know, just to hop that off, you know, people say, why vote for you if you can't win? Well, if you don't vote for what you want, nobody's going to even know what you want. You know, you vote for the Democrats and you want Medicare for all with Biden now, you get lost in the sauce. They don't know, you know, you could be a Sanders socialist and they don't know what your vote was for Medicare for all. A vote for the Green Party is clear. It would be Medicare for all, among the other things we're advocating. One of the things I appreciate about that answer um, and really highlights one of the subjects I wanted to discuss with you is sort of the overlap between the electoral campaigns that you're that you've been running and that you're running now and the social movements that you've been involved in for decades. And that, of course, being critical and that has also uh, been a central issue really all along throughout this campaign for those people talking about Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders as a viable candidate, etc. It was really always a about, you know, to what extent does Bernie Sanders represent a broader grassroots movement? So can you speak a little bit to the way in which uh, an electoral campaign and your electoral campaign is really a reflection of and complement to social movements rather than an electoral campaign in and of itself? It's really important that we have an independent left that participates in social movements, but also when we get to elections, uh, the movements don't get taken for granted. If uh, progressive social movements don't have an independent left alternative, they're reduced to lobbying the Democrats, who can take them for granted because their votes won't go anywhere else. So that's one aspect of the relationship. Uh, social movements need a, a left alternative to have leverage in the political system. And the other thing is, electoral campaigns need social movements because electoral campaigns tend to be you know, top down, you mobilize people for the vote. Uh, it's not really the kind of thing like social movements should be where you meet locally, you talk about your issues and what you want to say and how you're going to act to move your agenda. And that involves people in a much more participatory way. And that actually develops us as activists because, you know, talking to each other and the give and take, we all get smarter. And if we do it well, uh, we develop each other's skills. Like, you know, a local group can read something and have somebody present what they read and have a discussion. And you can rotate who presents it so people get practice doing public speaking. It's just one example of the ways we need to think about not just the immediate tactic, but how are we developing the people in the movement, spreading the skills and, and the abilities and the knowledge. So I think it's not electoral politics versus movement politics. They got to go hand in hand. Right. And that's been one of the questions I think that's been burning on the left for, for well, really for generations, uh, at least uh, the last few decades, but certainly in the last couple of weeks in the wake of the, um, 
what can we call it, the remnants of the Bernie Sanders campaign, because this question of do do leftists have any future within the Democratic Party or do leftists just have to uh, focus on building their own party? This, again, gets back to this, you know, th- this same question about realism in electoral in electoral politics versus what actual left politics demands of us. Well, I think if you want to be realistic and you're a lefty, you don't go into the world's second most enthusiastic capitalist party, the Democratic Party. That's what a conservative commentator called them. So you you got a choice between the most enthusiastic capitalist party, the Republicans, and the second most enthusiastic. I mean, why would a leftist even go there? Because you get lost in the sauce. You vote for uh, and support a centrist Democrat you know, what does that do for a real alternative? You know, we lose our voice, we lose our identity, our uh, independent action. We basically become grunts for the people we fight in between elections, whether it's affordable housing or police brutality or fracking. I mean, I don't care what the issue is. Uh, you know, we usually find we're fighting the Democrats. If we're living in cities, if we're living in rural areas, it's Republicans and the Democrats don't even run seriously in those rural areas. So, um, you know, a left should, that's the first principle of socialist politics, working class political independence. And, you know, we got to act and speak for ourselves. We can't, I call it political ventriloquism. You're trying to get these corporate funded politicians to do and say what you want. And, you know, those strings that, you know, the ventriloq, well, they don't even use strings of ventriloquism, but it's really hard to do because they can take you for granted. So I think uh, the left needs to have its own party. And uh, I believe it can develop into a major party. The natural base of the left is the working class. It votes in low numbers. People of color vote in low low numbers. Youth vote in low numbers. Uh, If we build a grassroots party that engages these people and organizes rather than just mobilizing the usual suspects, in other words, uh, builds relationships with these people so they trust us, you know, activists tend to be preachers. You know, we take a leaflet and go into the community and say, you know, get behind us or join us. And an organizer, a union organizer, a community organizer, they go in and listen and see what people are saying and find out how they can help and build relationships and trust. Because politics is more than just winning the argument. You can see that in the Democratic primary. Bernie won the argument on Medicare for all. But even a lot of people that support Medicare for all voted for Biden. And that was emotional because they were told he'd be the best shot against Trump, which is probably a wrong evaluation, but that's what they felt. So we need to build our own party and then build relationships with the people we're trying to organize, not just sit online and send out messages. We got to go out and it's hard now in this environment. But, you know, when we open up again, you know, we have to be knocking on doors and talking to people. One of the central tensions ideologically or in terms of the discourse on the left uh, for for a number of years has been this tension between, you know, uh, uh, so-called class reductionism and so-called identity politics, right? It's either all about class or it's all about identity. uh, And that sort of argument has gone on back and forth. And you, in many ways, kind of represent both of those worlds, right? You have the organized labor background being a teamster for many, many years, but you also have 
have the social justice and and uh, anti-war credentials and, and, and so forth. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about the intersection of those two and talking about how those two play together, because we have seen ways in which the working class continues to be split. We've seen organized labor and union workers voting for Trump. We've seen that in 2016. We'll likely see that again in 2020. How do we understand the tension or maybe complementary nature of those two seemingly disparate worlds? Well, let's first take identity politics. Uh, If you're part of an oppressed group and organize around that identity for your liberation, I have no problem with that. In fact, I don't believe you can have uh, working class unity without addressing questions like racism and sexism and homophobia, Islamophobia, all these negative isms. On the other hand, you can have identity around, you know, white identity politics. That's Trump. And that's about maintaining privilege and uh, advantage in society. And that's a problem. But if we're going to have working class politics, we won't be strong if we're divided by these identities that divide us, you know, around race and gender and uh, sexual orientation. And I would add geography and occupation. I mean, the working class is divided by occupations. You've got unionized workers and big companies having a pretty good contract, and then you got half the workforce in small businesses without the benefit of a contract, often low hours, low wages, no benefits. So there's tension there. And then they're all in the private sector, and then the public sector workers even have better contracts in most cases. So the private workers resent the public workers. And then you've got people in institutions like the prison system and the welfare system where working class people are in the system as clients or uh, inmates, and then there are other working class people who supervise them and uh, interact with them in terms of benefits in the welfare system. And all these people are working class. So how do we overcome that division? So that gets back to organizing what I was talking about before. Uh, We need to get people in the same room from these different backgrounds talking to each other about, well, what are our common interests? And what do we want to do? What kind of policies do we want from the government that will benefit all of us? So I don't think we should counterpose identity versus class politics. We got to deal with uh, overcoming the oppressions that people organize around their identity to overcome. Indeed, and I think that that issue of identity also does play into the very notion of what it means to be working class, because there is this, uh, to, to a large degree, very biased and somewhat racist perception, uh, at least among large swaths of the country, that when we say working class, we think of like white guys in, in the Midwest. We don't typically think of, you know, Hispanic uh, housekeepers or, you know, uh, landscapers or whatever it may be, or, you know, people of color in the in the South or wherever it may be, I think that we have this conception of what it means to be quote unquote working class and that in and of itself is an expression of the sort of racial attitudes at the heart of the country. And it prevents the white workers a lot of times from identifying with the working class because they think, oh, that puts me down with the people of color. And the fact is the working class today is majority people of color and majority women. And so uh, you're right, you know, the the identity of being a worker and what that means in a class divided society where workers are exploited is another identity that uh, we need more of. They used to call it class consciousness. And uh, the problem in this society is the only class with consciousness is the billionaire class. 
and they're very smart and astute about maintaining their advantages. So the rest of us, you know, should uh, recognize that and, and, you know, identify with our class. Before we go to the break, I just want to ask a, a, another quick question of you. How does being a worker impact your worldview? And what I mean by that is you mentioned in your biography and, you know, when you read it, your background, you highlight somewhat prominently that, you know, you were a teamster, that you unloaded trucks for, you know, X number of years and whatever. And, you know, not a lot of people do that. And I find it interesting. And I want to just ask you a little bit about that. Why do you highlight that in your biography? And why do you think that's important? Well, other working people identify with that, and they can say, well, he knows the kind of things I'm going through. <clears throat> and I think uh, it also distinguishes me from most politicians who are lawyers and uh, or, you know, come out of business. So I just think it enables people to identify me as somebody that uh, has a feel for what they're going through, particularly the people we're trying to organize, which are the people that vote less, because I don't think they're apathetic. They're alienated. They don't think either party knows them, cares about them. Uh, they never see them. They don't know what they're going through. So that's, that's, I think, why, you know, we put that in the bio. And also, it's just the truth. So, you know, why hide it? Absolutely. I just thought I just thought that it makes for a very interesting, uh, you know, comparison with the bios that you find of other political figures, because as you, as you say, I mean, most of them come from the professional class. And as we've seen with the uh, Democratic Party of the last 50 years, it has come to really represent really uh, elite finance capital more than it does, you know, factory workers or industrial heartland or anything like this. Yeah, well, both parties mass bases are middle class. You know, the Democrats tend to be the professionals in the caring and liberal professions, you know, professors, teachers, uh, nurses, social workers. And the Republicans tend to be the small business people, uh, the independent farmers and the middle managers in, you know, industrial operations. Uh, but they're they're middle class folks and, and neither party has uh and that's who they compete for in, in elections. And, you know, you look at the Democratic Party, it's really, it's got the ideology of the professional middle class. It's meritocracy. So they'll have, they call for diversity rather than equality. So that, you know, you get a few uh, women and people of color in high positions. And then uh, the, the subtext is everybody deserves the spot they ended up in. And it ignores all the regular exploitation and, uh, sorting of us into classes that goes on through the economy and our other institutions. That's the Democratic Party. And the Republican Party, I think their appeal to the middle class, the small business people and the middle managers is, you can be rich too, you know, stick with us because we got the real rich people behind us. And both those ideologies leave out the working people. Indeed. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about your perception and, and analysis of uh, Bernie Sanders, the Bernie Sanders campaign, what it meant, and what it means for the future of the left in the United States. So uh, stick with us on the other side of the break. We'll continue the conversation with Howie Hawkins. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. When you're working two jobs and living in a tent 
When a house costs a million bucks and you can't pay the rent When politicians say they'll help but it keeps getting worse Each time the landlord lobby pulls the strings of the purse When the human right to housing isn't even part of the debate You know you're living in a failed state of citizens are spending half their lives locked up in a prison for trying to survive when laws must be broken just to have a place to stay when the prisons pay the senators to look the other way if you have to be a criminal to put food upon your plate you know you're living in a failed state When the trees are all on fire When half the country's underwater When a climate change denier Runs the nation And the opposition party Votes for oil rigs and pipelines This is not so much a country As it is a corporation Buckling under its weight You know you're living in a failed state an empire facing daily blowback and the only thing your leaders can think to do is attack bipartisan consensus and we're back here on counterpunch radio i'm chatting with howie hawkins the website howiehawkins.us uh do check it out do share around the link if you could for anybody who is interested in in real left-wing politics in 2020 so before the break i was teasing uh talking a little bit about bernie because of course bernie no matter what you think of him uh is worth considering, worth discussing, and, and, and worth assessing now with a little bit of hindsight. So, Howie, um, as somebody with decades of experience on the left and somebody who has uh, some interactions with Bernie in your own past, can you talk a little bit about how you view uh, his campaign, not only this time around, but maybe maybe in 2016 and 2020, what it represented and what you think maybe it means for the future? Well, I was not surprised when Bernie did well in 2016. And I've watched Bernie since the 70s, and I knew him back then. Um, He was campaigning for issues that the people wanted. I mean, take Medicare for all. Used to be called National Health Insurance back when it was first introduced under the Truman administration. It's always had majority support in public opinion polling. And Bernie captured that. And uh, along with his other issues, and you know, taxing the rich, very popular position. Student debt was a huge issue. He addressed that. Uh, college was getting out of reach for many middle class as well as working class people, and he had spoke to that. So, you know, give him credit for that. I, he didn't create those issues. He gave voice to them. And the other thing he did was, you know, he'd been a socialist from the time he was in the Young People's Socialist League back in the early 60s. And, uh, you know, he got asked, I don't think he planned to run as a socialist, but he got asked, you know, you call yourself a democratic socialist. He didn't deny it. And I think that opened up a conversation about socialism. It used to be a conversation stopper. You say socialism and people don't want to talk, you know, it's going back to the old Red Scare. But after Bernie, uh, now it's a conversation starter. And in fact, I'd even give the right wing, you know, like Fox News some credit because they were calling Obama a socialist. And I think a lot of Obama people were saying, 
well, if he's a socialist, maybe I am. So this whole discussion has opened up, and I think uh, that's all to Bernie's credit. And he's put forward issues that are popular, and uh, you know now that's encouraging to people like us on the independent left because we're for a lot of those same reforms. We maybe want to go faster and further, but uh, you know that's good news for us. So we're just trying to build in his wake because now he's basically folded up his tents and is going to back Biden, who for take Medicare for all example, Biden said. If it crosses my desk as president, I'll veto it. Um, the the other side of Bernie on the, uh, I think, two things. One is he led progressives back into the Democratic Party, where progressive movements go to die. And we can go over the history going back to the People's Party, the populists in 1896, when they cross-endorsed William Jennings Bryan, and that killed him. That was political suicide. And the other thing is Bernie has reduced... Socialism to old-fashioned liberalism, New Deal liberalism. So instead of expropriating the billionaire class and having a socialist economic democracy based on social ownership and democratic administration of the major means of production, he said, that's not what I want to do. I just want to be like uh, Denmark, you know, a social democratic country where the rich are taxed for social programs. Uh, but the problem with that is if the rich, the billionaire class, have concentrated economic power, that translates into concentrated political power. So they can resist, and if they get passed, roll back these social programs. So you really can't have political democracy without economic democracy. Um, democracy really needs socialism to have you know, uh, political equality and a real democracy where the people decide. So I think you know that's the balance sheet I would put on, on Bernie Sanders' campaign. And, you know, my invitation to everybody that was supporting Bernie Sanders, if you still want to fight for Medicare for all, for a Green New Deal, for an economic bill of rights, for student and medical debt relief, and all those good things Bernie was campaigning for, uh, the way to do that and vote for it in November is with the Green Party. I think that's right. And um, it does lead me to my next question. I, I do want to come back to a couple of things you said there, Howie, but um, you are... You know, whether you like it or not, and whether you want to take it, uh, you know, take it this way or not, you are one of the originators of the Green New Deal as a policy proposal. Um, you know, going back to earlier campaigns of yours, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that because now that the Green New Deal as a term, as a concept, has become popularized, I'd like to get your read on how you feel it has sort of taken root in the public imagination. Because I know to some extent the Green New Deal, as it's understood. Today, uh, you know, post Bernie and post AOC is not quite the Green New Deal that many of us were talking about, uh, you know, a number of years ago. So talk a little bit about the origin of the Green New Deal, how you envisioned it and how you envision it moving forward, uh, you know, 2020 and beyond. Well, when I first campaigned, I was the first candidate in this country to campaign for a Green New Deal. I was running for governor in New York and it's 2010 and we're coming out of the Great Recession. So it was as much an economic recovery program as a climate action program. And we actually led with the Economic Bill of Rights, which is part of our Green New Deal, uh, because people were feeling the economic issues and the climate issues seemed further off. But we did say to get the economy going, we need massive investments in transforming the economy to a clean energy economy. And back then we were saying by 2020, because that's what the climate science says, the carbon budgets. Now we're 10 years later, we can't do it by 2020. It's going to take about a decade, but that's what we put forward in this campaign. And uh, 
what happened was it was the signature issue for the Green Party. Jill Stein ran for president. That was the central theme of her campaign in both 2012 and 2016. And then it was picked up by the Sunrise Movement and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They sat in Pelosi's office demanding a Green New Deal. And the mass media ate it up. It went viral. And then they did a poll a few weeks later, and over 80% of the Americans wanted a Green New Deal, because now people really are worried about climate change. And even 64% of the Republicans did. So it's very popular. So what happened? Well, their proposal for a select committee for a Green New Deal you know, Pelosi sliced, diced, and threw that down to disposal because she didn't want them putting legislation right onto the floor of the House. So they came back after the uh, break and the new session of Congress started. And so AOC and Ed Markey, the senator, put in a non-binding resolution for a Green New Deal. But they took the brand from the Green Party and watered down the content. They left out the ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure which is like the lead demand. We got to stop digging the hole and burning these fossil fuels. They left out the phase out of nuclear power. They left out the deep cuts in military spending to help fund the Green New Deal. And they extended the deadline from 2030 to 2050. You know, you give politicians a couple more decades, they, they're not going to do anything now. They'll say the next generation can deal with it. So, and then Pelosi won't even let them vote on it in the House. And McConnell did because he wanted those Democratic senators running for president to go on the record. So Schumer and Markey said, oh, this is a trick. We're going to vote present. And all the good little Democrats did except four of them voted with the Republicans no on the Green New Deal. So we're not going to get a Green New Deal from the Democratic Party. Now, I will say I have a, uh, well, what I call my Green New Deal now, the eco-socialist Green New Deal. Because to get this done in 10 years, we got to do what we did during World War II when uh, in that emergency, the federal government took over or built a quarter of the manufacturing capacity of the country in order to turn industry on a dime into the arsenal of democracy that armed the US, the UK, and Russia to defeat the Nazis. And we need to do nothing less through the public sector to defeat climate change. So we're talking about public energy, both the fuels from the you know oil and gas companies as well as the utilities. We're talking about public transportation, rebuilding railroads of all kinds, freight, high-speed bullet trains, in, intra-city light rails, the old trolley systems we used to have between the 1890s and 1930s, and, and bringing in air travel into that to coordinate the scheduling. And the airlines will be cheap to buy now. It'd be a good time, but we're not going to get it under Trump. But, uh, and then manufacturing. We got to rebuild all our manufacturing processes to have zero waste, so we're not putting out all these pollutants, including the huge plastics problem we've got. And it's powered by clean energy. So we can go through the different technologies. I'll give you one example. Cement production is 5% of the world's carbon footprint because they throw calcium carbonate in there and heat it up. Calcium hardens the cement, but the, the, the carbonate part evaporates into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and heats up the planet. So we need a new way of making cement. There are ways. We just got to scale them up. And that won't happen through the private sector with market incentives and regulations here and mandates there because the industry will fight it because they want to wear out the factories they got before they build new ones. So that's why we got to do it through the public sector. And, uh, you know, the, the, all the Democratic candidates' proposals were pathetic. They were not serious, except for Bernie Sanders. Uh, he was proposing $16.3 trillion. That was an order of magnitude more spending than any of the others. Biden, by the way, was the worst. I mean, he's pro-nuke. He wants carbon sequestration so we can keep burning oil and gas. He's pro-fracking. 
He's a disaster for the climate. And uh, burning 16.3 trillion over 10 years to get to uh, zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And uh, my budget, we had, it's on my website, comes out to 27.3 trillion for reconstructing the economy. And we think Bernie's numbers are good. It's just he's on a longer timeline, 2050 as opposed to 2030. But that's the kind of program we need if we're seriously going to tackle the climate crisis. And now that we're in this coronavirus depression, I think that's how we're going to get the economy moving again. And uh, so I think more than ever, we need a Green New Deal, an eco-socialist Green New Deal. I think it would be appropriate for me to just ask you to take a minute or two to explain what you mean and what the and what the term means, eco-socialism. What do you mean by eco-socialism? Well, it emphasizes that uh, socialism, you know, wants to produce so everybody has sufficient uh, goods and services to have a decent standard of living. But in the 20th century, the problem of socialism, particularly in underdeveloped countries was the problem of production. So they emphasized the forces of production and chose a lot of technologies that were not good for the environment. The problem today is not that we don't have the capacity to produce enough to meet everybody's needs. The problem is that we're exceeding ecological limits. So the idea of eco-socialism is a system we want to uh, plan the production of the basic needs of everybody within ecological limits. So that's why we put the eco or ecological in front of socialism these days. So I'm going to now trot out the, 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 the question that you've heard a million times that is always asked and I think probably is obnoxious to even discuss, but it's important. What's the point, Howie? Tell me, what's the point? We all know you can't win. We all know a third party can't win a presidential election in the United States. So what's the point? I mean, I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious in asking it in that way because I could think of a million uh, valid reasons. But I want to hear how you are responding to that question. And then the other questions that are tangential to that. Uh, how do you like stealing votes from Democrats? How do you like being responsible for electing Trump? All of the usual bullshit. Uh, what do you think, Howie? Well, what's the point? The point is we're building a movement, an independent left, because the Democrats and Republicans can't solve basic problems, life and death issues, like the climate crisis. Like inequality, inequality is killing. We have now declining life expectancies in the working class in this country. We have a 20 year life expectancy gap between our richest and poorest countries. Working class people got to choose between whether they can go to the doctor or pay the rent. And people die because of that. The man that was living downstairs from me in this apartment uh, last year, last April, he had, you know, at the end of winter, he decided he better pay his utility bills, which were up because of the winter, and his rent rather than buy the kidney medicine that his Medicaid, uh, you know, he, he was on Medicaid, he was a low-wage worker, said he should get, and he had been getting, but he decided to skip it in April. And by mid-April, his kidneys had failed and he died. That kind of thing is going on all over the country. And so that's the second life or death issue. The nuclear arms race, none of the major candidates, none of the presidential candidates are talking about that. We've got out all these treaties, we're modernizing the nuclear weapons, tactical nukes, strategic nukes. The last bilateral treaty between the United States and Russia expires next February 5th. There are no negotiations going on to renew it. And that's why the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, have moved their doomsday clock to closest to midnight it's ever been. So if the Greens are not in this 
election raising these issues and advancing them, they're not even going to be discussed, which gets to the spoiler question you raised. You know, I'm asked, well, why am I spoiling the election for Biden? And my answer is no, the Democrats are spoiling the election because we have an answer to the spoiler problem. Get rid of the Electoral College and have a ranked choice national popular vote for president. And they've been picking on the Greens instead of dealing with the Electoral College since Ralph Nader ran in 2000. Ralph Nader didn't uh, get Bush elected. The Electoral College did with an assist from the Supreme Court. Donald Trump is a loser. He lost a popular vote by 3 million votes in 2016. But the Electoral College put him in office. So you would think the Democrats would say, hey, we got a problem here. There hasn't been a Republican president in the century, the 21st century, that didn't get in the first, first get into office through the Electoral College. And instead, the Democrats want to tell the Greens, go away. Like, it's, you know, we didn't do the Electoral College. And the Democrats got the platform and the power to try to do something about it. And they haven't. So if the Greens are not in the race, in fact, Bill McKibben wrote an article in The New Yorker a couple days ago saying, and he named me, and he said the Greens should not run for president and fight for ranked choice voting. Well, guess what? If we don't run for president, it's not even going to be discussed. So that's politics. If you don't get up and speak out and speak for yourselves and vote for what you want, you're not going to get it. So what does it mean moving forward? I mean, in, in this election, I think we, we understand that Donald Trump or Biden or whomever they replace Biden with, if that if the conspiracy theories prove correct, uh, they are going to be in this election and you're going to be on the outside looking in. They're not going to let you onto those debate stages. They're not going to let you into the mainstream discourse. So how does the message penetrate? What is the strategy for the Green Party and for Howie Hawkins in 2020 to break through the you know seemingly impenetrable force field that is corporate media and the mainstream discourse? Well, first of all, even if we don't break through, but I think there's possibilities, uh, we have grassroots organizing. That's where the playing field is level. And where we have organized support, organized Green parties, uh, we can expand the base uh, as we campaign and build for the future. And so uh, that's a positive outcome. We can also get ballot lines. In 40 of the 50 states, uh, how many votes a presidential candidate gets determines whether the Green Party will have a ballot line for the next election cycle. In most of those states, it's one, two, or 3%. That's achievable. And that makes it easier for our local and state and congressional candidates to get on a ballot. Uh, without a ballot line, the petitioning requirements are insurmountable really in some states and very difficult in others. So that's an achievement we can make. Now, as far as the debates go, look, this Commission on Presidential Debates is sounds like a government agency. In fact, it's a private corporation controlled by the Democrats and Republicans. And they created it to keep other candidates out. That's exactly why they did it. The League of Women Voters used to host them and they got muscled aside. And when that happened, they, they issued a very strong statement condemning this Commission on Presidential Debates. The Green Party, the Libertarian Party, have sued and sued and sued over several election cycles, saying this is, you know, anti, there are antitrust arguments and uh, other arguments saying it was, you know, deleterious to democracy, did not succeed in court. So I think the strategy this time is to encourage the legal women voters to step up and get some major media organization, you know, it's a broadcast network, 
and host their own debate and invite all the candidates who could win the Electoral College who are on enough ballots. That's probably the Greens, the Libertarians, the Democrats, and Republicans. That is a possibility. Here in New York in 2018, Andrew Cuomo didn't want to debate us. Uh, and I actually ran into him in Central Park and I said, I'm looking forward to our next debate. And he, he, at first he thought there was a debate and he looked at me with a furrowed brow and said, what debate? And I said, we should have a series of debates. And then he realized, you know, I was just woofing. So he said, what, you going to organize them? And I said, yeah, if I have to. And, and so I went to the League of Women Voters and they sponsored a debate. The Republican came, the Libertarian came. There was another corporate candidate that they, they ended up coming in fifth, but they were there. Cuomo didn't come, and unfortunately no media broadcasted. But the New York State League of Women Voters stood up. And I think it's time now for the National League of Women Voters to stand up. And so we're going to have a campaign to encourage them to do that. And as far as earned media go, <clears throat> I've started to get covered. You know, as soon as Bernie had a bad day on Super Tuesday and another one on Big Tuesday, and then he dropped out and then he endorsed Biden, I'm getting calls from, you know, the Washington Times, the Washington Post, the Washington Examiner, the New York Post, uh, The Economist, uh, Michael Isakoff, you know, his podcast. Uh, so we're starting to, you know, get our toe into that pool. And uh, I think we can get more media because we have interesting thing to say. I think the reporters are interested in what we have to say. Like, why isn't the nuclear arms race a top campaign issue? I'm the only one raising it. It's an existential threat. And uh, there are reporters that say, yeah, that's worth covering. Or how do we get on the ballot in the coronavirus environment where we can't go out and petition because of social distancing? I mean, our campaign is now writing to or helping our state parties write to the governor, secretary of state and legislative leaders in the various states to give us relief. In a lot of cases, we're just saying, put us on the ballot. We've been on the ballot for several election cycles. Uh, New Jersey's asking for electronic uh, signatures, which they did in a primary there this year. Uh, there are other states that have filing fees. So by various remedies, we're, we're fighting to get on the ballot. But that's a story in itself. And uh, so I, I'm not ruling out earned media or debates. At least we're going to fight for it. And if we fail at that, we always have the grassroots organizing and social media to build the movement and come out of this campaign stronger than we went into it. Indeed. Um, so this the, in the course of this show, the, I guess we've been doing for five years now, we had Jill Stein during the 2016 election cycle. We had Ajamu Baraka. We've had Gia Lee. We've had you. We've had pretty much as many uh, leading green uh, candidates as I could think of and certainly whose contact information I have. And so the reason I'm the reason I'm bringing that up is because I bring up the same issue every time I speak to somebody from the Green Party Um one of the concerns that I have, and I know a lot of other people have as well, is that the Green Party's focus on um, election cycles takes away from the potential of political organizing outside of the electoral arena that we don't really see from the Green Party in between election cycles. And of course, those of us from a, you know, radical revolutionary perspective can think of, you know, uh, antecedents in the recent past, like the Black Panther and others that, that worked on non-electoral political organizing. So that's my question to you. To what extent is the Green Party capable of, prepared for, and willing to engage in the kind of politics outside of these election cycles that I think really is required to build a revolutionary alternative on the left? Well, I don't think the problem is that the Greens don't participate in social movements. 
I mean, we always get called. We show up. I mean, we're activists. I think the problem is we don't initiate campaigns. We sort of uh, support others. And so we're not that visible. Um, so I think that's part of the issue. You mentioned the Black Panther Party. Yeah, I saw them in Oakland coming up, and it was amazing what they did. It was also, I mean, it was a frenzy because to run all those uh, community programs and deal with all the repression and the trials, <clears throat> it burned people out very quickly. So we need a more sustainable model. The thing I, <clears throat> excuse me, I've advocated for the Green Party is we need to be like trade unions. You know, if we're going to have a labor movement, we got to pay for it ourselves. The bosses aren't. So we pay dues. And left parties, this is an invention of the left, the labor movement in the 19th century. If we're going to have a party of working class people, we're going to have to pay for itself. The rich aren't going to sponsor it. And we've avoided doing that in this country. And I think we need to do that. I mean, the labor movement, as weak and small as, and shrunken as it's become, still raises 8 to $12 billion a year. Unfortunately, the political arm, they, they wasted on the Democrats who take them for granted. But uh, I think we can you know, raise. What we need are staff, field organizers to support the organizing of the Green Party. And also to teach us how to be organizers, not just mobilizers, activists. Instead of mobilizing the usual suspect, we got to learn how to organize more people into the whole movement and the party. So I don't think it's that we're not there between the elections. It's that we're not there so visibly as the Green Party. And there was a debate years ago about whether we should you know, do movement activity or political activity. I haven't really heard that debated for a decade in the Green Party. Everybody pretty much understands we got to be engaged in both. I think that one of the reasons uh, one of the reasons that question keeps coming up is because for most people, um, even those on the left, the Green Party sort of exists on the political periphery of uh, election campaigns and and really nowhere else, at least not in the sort of popular imagination. Yeah, well, I think we uh, I've not done it. We're so weak at the national level. I mean, we got, a, I think, a couple part time people. It's very decentralized. Um, and I'm all for bottom-up grassroots democracy, but you got to have a center that's supporting the organizing. And so that's meant, you know, we have well over 100 people in elected office, and very few people know that. Everybody, for example, knows that Socialist Alternative elected one person, Shama Sawant, to the city council in Seattle. They're better at promoting themselves. And so I think, uh, you know, that's something the Greens need to improve upon so people know what we're actually doing. I mean, I know here in Syracuse, as an example, uh, Green Party members are their leaders in the Syracuse Peace Council, the Worker Center of Central New York, Black Lives Matter, all these activities, but they do it as uh, leaders of those organizations. And not everybody knows the paper doesn't describe them as Greens when they're uh, in the media. So, you know, I think we, we need to do a better job of just letting people know what we're actually doing. 
Absolutely right. We're gonna we're probably gonna have to leave it there, but I do want to urge everybody to get to the website howiehawkins.us. Uh, read the policy stuff there. Read the background. There's a lot of good information there, and um, get involved because whether you were supportive of Bernie, hating on Bernie from the left, or you know somewhere in between, I think all of us really do need to uh, you know ground ourselves and think very carefully about how we're going to express our political preferences in 2020. Howie, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show, for your continued work, and of course for taking on this uh, this campaign and this monumental challenge. And of course, we wish you luck. Thanks, Howie. Well, thank you, listeners. Thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.